the most elaborate reasoning of Butler or Paley or Chalmers. Whenever a man begins to take up new views of religion and pretends to despise all Bible Christianity, thrusts home at his conscience the old woman's question, ask him whether his new views make him feel comfortable within, ask him whether he can say with honesty and sincerity that he is happy. The grand test of a man's faith and religion is, does it make him happy? Let me now affectionately invite every reader to consider the subject of this paper. Let me warn you to remember that the salvation of your soul and nothing less is closely bound up with the subject. The heart cannot be right in the sight of God which knows nothing of happiness. That man or woman cannot be in a safe state of soul who feels nothing of peace within. There are three things which I purpose to do in order to clear up the subject of happiness. I ask special attention to each one of them, and I pray the Spirit of God to apply all to the souls of all who read this paper. One, let me point out some things which are absolutely essential to all happiness. Two, let me expose some common mistakes about the way to be happy. Three, let me show the way to be truly happy. One, first of all, I have to point out some things which are absolutely essential to all true happiness. Happiness is what all mankind want to obtain. The desire of it is deeply planted in the human heart. All men naturally dislike pain, sorrow, and discomfort. All men naturally like ease, comfort, and gladness. All men naturally hunger and thirst after happiness. Just as the sick man longs for health and the prisoner of war for liberty, just as the parched traveler in hot countries longs to see the cooling fountain or the ice-bound polar voyager, the sun rising above the horizon, just in the same way does poor mortal man long to be happy. But alas, how few consider what they really mean when they talk of happiness, how vague and indistinct and undefined the ideas of most men are upon the subject. They think some are happy who in reality are miserable. They think some are gloomy and sad who in reality are truly happy. They dream of a happiness which in reality would never satisfy their nature's wants. Let me try this day to throw a little light on the subject. True happiness is not perfect freedom from sorrow and discomfort. Let that never be forgotten. If it were so, there would be no such thing as happiness in the world. Such happiness is for angels who have never fallen and not for man. The happiness I am inquiring about is such as a poor, dying, sinful creature may hope to attain. Our whole nature is defiled by sin. 
evil abounds in the world. Sickness and death and change are daily doing their sad work on every side. In such a state of things, the highest happiness man can attain to on earth must necessarily be a mixed thing. If we expect to find any literally perfect happiness on this side of the grave, we expect what we shall not find. True happiness does not consist in laughter and smiles. The face is very often a poor index of the inward man. There are thousands who laugh loud and are merry as a grasshopper in company, but are wretched and miserable in private and almost afraid to be alone. There are hundreds who are grave and serious in their demeanor, whose hearts are full of solid peace. A poet of our own has truly told us that smiles are worth but little. A man may smile and smile and be a villain. And the eternal word of God teaches us that even in laughter the heart is sorrowful. Proverbs 14, verse 13 Tell me not merely of smiling and laughing faces. I want to hear of something more than that when I ask whether a man is happy. A truly happy man no doubt will often show his happiness in his countenance. But a man may have a very merry face and yet not be happy at all. Of all deceptive things on earth, nothing is so deceptive as mere gaiety and merriment. It is a hollow, empty show, utterly devoid of substance and reality. Listen to the brilliant talker in society and mark the applause which he receives from an admiring company. Follow him to his own private room, and you will very likely find him plunged in melancholy despondency. Colonel Gardner confessed that even when he was thought most happy, he often wished he was a dog. Look at the smiling beauty in the ballroom, and you might suppose she knew not what it was to be unhappy. See her next day at her own home, and you may probably find her out of temper with herself and everybody else besides. Oh, no, worldly merriment is not real happiness. There is a certain pleasure about it, I do not deny. There is an animal excitement about it, I make no question. There is a temporary elevation of spirits about it, I freely concede. But call it not by the sacred name of happiness. The most beautiful cut flowers stuck into the ground do not make a garden. When glass is called diamond and tinsel is called gold, then and not till then your people who can laugh and smile will deserve to be called happy men. Disclosed in the footnote, Cervantes, author of Don Quixote, at a time when all Spain was laughing at his humorous work, was overwhelmed with a deep cloud of melancholy. Moliere, the first of French comic writers, carried into his domestic circle a sadness 
which the greatest worldly prosperity could never dispel. Samuel Foote, the noted wit of the last century, died of a broken heart. Theodore Hope, the facetious novel writer who could set everybody laughing, says of himself in his diary, I am suffering under a constant depression of spirits which no one who sees me in society dreams of. A woe-begone stranger consulted a physician about his health. The physician advised him to keep up his spirits by going to hear the great comic actor of the day. You should go and hear Matthews. He would make you well. Alas, sir, was the reply, I am Matthews himself. Pictorial Pages To be truly happy, the highest wants of a man's nature must be met and satisfied. The requirements of his curiously wrought constitution must all be filled up. There must be nothing about him that cries, Give, give! but cries in vain and gets no answer. The horse and the ox are happy as long as they are warmed and filled. And why? It is because they are satisfied. The little infant looks happy when it is clothed and fed and well, and in its mother's arms. And why? Because it is satisfied. And just so it is with man. His highest wants must be met and satisfied before he can be truly happy. All must be filled up. There must be no void, no empty places, no unsupplied cravings. Till then, he is never truly happy. And what are man's principal wants? Has he a body only? No, he has something more. He has a soul. Has he sensual faculties only? Can he do nothing but hear and see and smell and taste and feel? No. He has a thinking mind and a conscience. Has he no consciousness of any world but that in which he lives and moves? He has. There is a still small voice within him which often makes itself heard. This life is not all. There is a world unseen. There is a life beyond the grave. Yes, it is true. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. All men know it. All men feel it, if they would only speak the truth. It is utter nonsense to pretend that Food and raiment and earthly good things alone can make men happy. There are soul wants. There are conscious wants. There can be no true happiness until these wants are satisfied. To be truly happy, a man must have sources of gladness which are not dependent on anything in this world. There is nothing upon earth which is not stamped with a mark of instability and uncertainty. All the good things that money can buy are but for a moment. They either 
leave us or we are obliged to leave them. All the sweetest relationships in life are liable to come to an end. Death may come any day and cut them off. The man whose happiness depends entirely on things here below is like him who builds his house on sand or leans his weight on a reed. Tell me not of your happiness if it daily hangs on the uncertainties of earth. Your home may be rich in comforts. Your wife and children may be all you could desire. Your means may be amply sufficient to meet all your wants. But oh, remember, if you have nothing more than this to look to, that you stand on the brink of a precipice. Your rivers of pleasure may any day be dried up. Your joy may be deep and earnest, but it is fearfully short-lived. It has no root. It is not true happiness. To be really happy, a man must be able to look on every side without uncomfortable feelings. He must be able to look back to the past without guilty fears. He must be able to look around him without discontent. He must be able to look forward without anxious dread. He must be able to sit down and think calmly about things past, present, and to come and feel prepared. The man who has a weak side in his condition, a side that he does not like looking at or considering, that man is not really happy. Talk not to me of your happiness if you are unable to look steadily either before or behind you. Your present position may be easy and pleasant. You may find many sources of joy and gladness in your profession, your dwelling place, your family, and your friends. Your health may be good. Your spirits may be cheerful. But stop and think quietly over your past life. Can you reflect calmly on all the omissions and commissions of bygone years? How will they bear God's inspection? How will you answer for them at the last day? And then look forward and think on the years yet to come. Think on the certain ends towards which you are hastening. Think of death. Think of judgment. Think of the hour when you will meet God face to face. Are you ready for it? Are you prepared? Can you look forward to these things without alarm? Oh, be very sure if you cannot look comfortably at any season but the present. Your boasted happiness is a poor, unreal thing. It is but a whitened sepulcher. Fair and beautiful without, but bones and corruption within. It is a mere thing of a day, like Jonah's gourd. It is not real happiness. I ask my readers to fix in their minds the account of things essential to happiness, which I have attempted to give. Dismiss from your thoughts the many mistaken notions which pass current on this subject, like counterfeit coin. To be truly happy, the wants of your soul and conscience must be satisfied. 
To be truly happy, your joy must be founded on something more than this world can give you. To be truly happy, you must be able to look on every side, above, below, behind, before, and feel that all is right. This is real, sterling, genuine happiness. This is the happiness I have in view when I urge on your notice the subject of this paper. Two, in the next place, let me expose some common mistakes about the way to be happy. There are several roads which are thought by many to lead to happiness. In each of these roads, thousands and tens of thousands of men and women are continually traveling. Each fancies that if he could only attain all he wants, he would be happy. Each fancies, if he does not succeed, that the fault is not in his road, but in his own want of luck and good fortune. And all alike seem ignorant that they are hunting shadows. They have started in a wrong direction. They are seeking that which can never be found in the place where they seek it. I will mention by name some of the principal delusions about happiness. I do it in love and charity and compassion to men's souls. I believe it to be a public duty to warn people against cheats, quacks, and impostors. Oh, how much trouble and sorrow it might save my readers if they would only believe what I am going to say. It is an utter mistake to suppose that rank and greatness alone can give happiness the kings and rulers of this world are not necessarily happy men. They have troubles and crosses which none know but themselves. They see a thousand evils which they are unable to remedy. They are slaves working in golden chains and have less real liberty than any in the world. They have burdens and responsibilities laid upon them which are a daily weight on their hearts. The Roman Emperor Antonine often said that the imperial power was an ocean of miseries. Queen Elizabeth, when she heard a milkmaid singing, wished that she had been born to a lot like hers. Never did our great poet write a truer word than when he said, Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown. It is an utter mistake to suppose that riches alone can give happiness. They can enable a man to command and possess everything but inward peace. They cannot buy a cheerful spirit and a light heart. There is care in the getting of them, and care in the keeping of them, care in the using of them, and care in the disposing of them, care in the gathering, and care in the scattering of them. He was a wise man who said that money was only another name for trouble, and that the same English letters which spelt acres would also spell cares. It is another mistake to suppose that learning and science alone can give happiness. They may occupy a man's time and attention, but they cannot really make him happy. They that increase knowledge often increase sorrow. 
the more they learn, the more they discover their own ignorance. Ecclesiastes 1.18 It is not in the power of things on earth or under the earth to minister to a mind diseased. The heart wants something as well as the head. The conscience needs food as well as the intellect. All the secular knowledge in the world will not give a man joy and gladness when he thinks on sickness and death and the grave. They that have climbed the highest have often found themselves solitary, dissatisfied, and empty of peace. The learned Selden, at the close of his life, confessed that all his learning did not give him such comfort as four verses of St. Paul. Titus 2.11-14 It is another mistake to suppose that idleness alone can give happiness. The laborer who gets up at five in the morning and goes out to work all day in a cold clay ditch often thinks as he walks past the rich man's door, what a fine thing it must be to have no work to do. Poor fellow, he little knows what he thinks. The most miserable creature on earth is the man who has nothing to do. Work for the hands or work for the head is absolutely essential to human happiness. Without it, the mind feeds upon itself and the whole inward man becomes diseased. The machinery within will work and without something to work upon will often wear itself to pieces. There was no idleness in Eden. Adam and Eve had to dress the garden and keep it. There will be no idleness in heaven. God's servants shall serve Him. Oh, be very sure the idlest man is the man most truly unhappy. Genesis 2.15, Revelation 22, verse 3. It is an utter mistake to suppose that pleasure-seeking and amusement alone can give happiness. Of all roads that men can take in order to be happy, this is the one that is most completely wrong. Of all weary, flat, dull, and unprofitable ways of spending life, this exceeds all. To think of a dying creature with an immortal soul expecting happiness in feasting and reveling, in dancing and singing, in dressing and visiting, in ball-going and card-playing, in races and fairs, in hunting and shooting, in crowds, in laughter, in noise, in music, in wine. Surely it is a sight that is enough to make the devil laugh and the angels weep. Even a child will not play with its toys all day long. It must have food. But when grown-up men and women think to find happiness in a constant round of amusement, they sink far below a child. I place before every reader of this paper these common mistakes about the way to be happy. I ask you to mark them well. I warn you plainly against these pretended shortcuts to happiness, however crowded they may be. I tell you that if you fancy any one of them can lead you to true peace, you are entirely deceived. Your conscience will never feel satisfied. 
Your immortal soul will never feel easy. Your whole inward man will feel uncomfortable and out of health. Take any one of these roads or take all of them, and if you have nothing besides to look to, you will never find happiness. You may travel on and on and on, and the wished for object will seem as far away at the end of each stage of life as when you started. You are like one pouring water into a sieve or putting money into a bag with holes. You might as well try to make an elephant happy by feeding him with a grain of sand a day as try to satisfy that heart of yours with rank, riches, learning, idleness, or pleasure. Do you doubt the truth of all I am saying? I dare say you do. Then let us turn to the great book of human experience and read over a few lines out of its solemn pages. You shall have the testimony of a few competent witnesses on the great subject I am urging on your attention. A king shall be our first witness, I mean Solomon, king of Israel. We know that he had power and wisdom and wealth far exceeding that of any ruler of his time. We know from his own confession that he tried the great experiment how far the good things of this world can make man happy. We know from the record of his own hand the result of this curious experiment. He writes it by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost for the benefit of the whole world in the book of Ecclesiastes. Never surely was the experiment tried under such favorable circumstances Never was anyone so likely to succeed as the Jewish king. Yet what is Solomon's testimony? You have it in his melancholy words. All is vanity and vexation of spirit. Ecclesiastes 1.14 A famous French lady shall be our next witness. I mean Madame de Pompadour. She was a friend and favorite of Louis XV. She had unbounded influence at the court of France. She wanted nothing that money could procure. Yet, what did she say herself? What a situation is that of the great. They only live in the future and are only happy in hope. There is no peace in ambition. I am always gloomy and often so unreasonably. The kindness of the king, the regard of courtiers, the attachment of my domestics and the fidelity of a large number of friends, motives like these, which are to make me happy, affect me no longer. I have no longer inclinations for all which once pleased me. I have caused my house at Paris to be magnificently furnished. Well, it pleased for two days. My residence at Bellevue is charming and I alone cannot endure it. Benevolent people relate to me all the news and adventures of Paris. They think I listen, but when they have done, I ask them what they said. In a word, I do not live. I am dead before my time. I have no interest in the world. Everything conspires to embitter my life.
my life as a continual death. To such testimony, I need not add a single word. Sinclair's Anecdotes and Aphorisms, page 33. A famous German writer shall be our next witness. I mean Getty. It is well known that he was almost idolized by many during his life. His works were read and admired by thousands. His name was known and honored wherever German was read all over the world. And yet the praise of man of which he reaped such an abundant harvest was utterly unable to make Gatti happy. He confessed when about eighty years old that he could not remember being in a really happy state of mind even for a few weeks together, and that when he wished to feel happy, he had to veil his self-consciousness. See Sinclair's Anecdotes and Aphorisms, page 280. An English peer and poet shall be our next witness. I mean Lord Byron. If ever there was one who ought to have been happy according to the standard of the world, Lord Byron was the man. He began life with all the advantages of English rank and position. He had splendid abilities and powers of mind which the world soon discovered and was ready to honor. He had a sufficiency of means to gratify every lawful wish and never knew anything of real poverty. Humanly speaking, there seemed nothing to prevent him enjoying life and being happy. Yet it is a notorious fact that Byron was a miserable man. Misery stands out in his poems. Misery creeps out in his letters. Weariness, satiety, disgust, and discontent appear in all his ways. He is an awful warning that rank and title and literary fame alone are not sufficient to make a man happy. A man of science shall be our next witness, I mean Sir Humphrey Davy. He was a man eminently successful in the line of life which he chose, and deservedly so. A distinguished philosopher, the inventor of the famous safety lamp which bears his name and has preserved so many poor miners from death by fire damp, a baronet of the United Kingdom and president of the Royal Society. His whole life seemed a continual career of prosperity. If learning alone were the road to happiness, this man at least ought to have been happy. Yet, what was the true record of Davy's feelings? We have it in his own melancholy journal at the latter part of his life. He describes himself in two painful words, very miserable. A man of wit and pleasure shall be our next witness. I mean Lord Chesterfield. He shall speak for himself. His own words in a letter shall be his testimony. I have seen the silly round of business and pleasure and have done with it all. I have enjoyed all the pleasures of the world and consequently know their futility and do not regret their loss. I appraise them at their real value which in truth is very low, whereas those who have not experienced always overrate them. 
They only see their gay outside and are dazzled with their glare. But I have been behind the scenes. I have seen all the coarse pulleys and dirty ropes which exhibit and move the gaudy machine, and I have seen and smelt the tallow candles which illuminate the whole decoration to the astonishment and admiration of the ignorant audience. When I reflect on what I have seen, what I have heard, and what I have done, I cannot persuade myself that all that frivolous hurry of bustle and pleasure of the world had any reality. I look on all that is past as one of those romantic dreams which opium occasions, and I do by no means wish to repeat that nauseous dose for the sake of the fugitive dream. Unquote. These sentences speak for themselves. I need not add to them one single word. The statesmen and politicians who have swayed the destinies of the world ought by good right to be our last witnesses, but I forbear in Christian charity to bring them forward. It makes my heart ache when I run my eye over the list of names famous in English history and think how many have worn out their lives in a breathless struggle after place and distinction. How many of our greatest men have died of broken hearts, disappointed, disgusted, and tried with constant failure? How many have left on record some humbling confession that in the plenitude of their power they were pining for rest as the caged eagle for liberty? How many whom the world is applauding as masters of the situation are in reality little better than galley slaves chained to the oar and unable to get free. Alas, there are many sad proofs, both among the living and the dead, that to be great and powerful is not necessarily to be happy. I think it very likely that men do not believe what I am saying. I know something of the deceitfulness of the heart on the subject of happiness, there are few things which man is so slow to believe as the truths I am now putting forth about the way to be happy. Bear with me, then, while I say something more. Come and stand with me some afternoon in the heart of the city of London. Let us watch the faces of most of the wealthy men whom we shall see leaving their houses of business at the close of the day. Some of them are worth hundreds of thousands some of them are worth millions of pounds. But what is written in the countenances of these grave men whom we see swarming out from Lombard Street and Cornhill, from the Bank of England and the Stock Exchange? What mean those deep lines which furrow so many cheek and so many a brow? What means that air of anxious thoughtfulness which is one by five out of every six we meet. Ah, these things tell a serious tale. They tell us that it needs something more than gold and banknotes to make men happy. Come next and stand with me near the Houses of Parliament in the middle of a busy season. Let us scan the faces of peers and commoners whose names are familiar and well known all 
over the civilized world, there you may see on some fine May evening the mightiest statesmen in England hurrying to a debate like eagles to the carcass. Each has a power of good or evil in his tongue which it is fearful to contemplate. Each may say things before tomorrow's sun dawns which may affect the peace and prosperity of nations and convulse the world. There you may see the men who hold the reins of power and government already. There you may see the men who are daily watching for an opportunity of snatching those reins out of their hands and governing in their stead. But what do their faces tell us as they hasten to their posts? What may be learned from their careworn countenances? What may be read in many of their wrinkled foreheads, so absent-looking and sunk in thought? They teach us a solemn lesson. They teach us that it needs something more than political greatness to make men happy. Come next and stand with me in the most fashionable part of London in the height of the season. Let us visit Regent Street or Paul Mall, Hyde Park or Mayfair. How many fair faces and splendid equipages we shall see. How many we shall count up in an hour's time who seem to possess the choicest gifts of this world. Beauty, wealth, rank, fashion, and troops of friends. But alas, how few we shall see who appear happy. In how many continences we shall read weariness, dissatisfaction, discontent, sorrow, or unhappiness, as clearly as if it was written with a pen. Yes, it is a humbling lesson to learn, but a very wholesome one. It needs something more than rank and fashion and beauty to make people happy. Come next and walk with me through some quiet country parish in merry England. Let us visit some secluded corner in our beautiful old fatherland, far away from great towns and fashionable dissipation and political strife. There are not a few such to be found in the land there are rural parishes where there is neither street nor public house nor beer shop, where there is work for all the laborers and a church for all the population and a school for all the children and a minister of the gospel to look after the people. Surely, you will say, we shall find happiness here. Surely such parishes must be the very abodes of peace and joy. Go into those quiet-looking cottages one by one, and you will soon be undeceived. Learn the inner history of each family, and you will soon alter your mind. You will soon discover that backbiting and lying and slandering and envy and jealousy and pride and laziness and drinking and extravagance and lust and petty quarrels can murder happiness in the country quite as much as in the town. No doubt a rural village sounds pretty in poetry and looks beautiful in pictures, but in sober reality human nature is the same evil thing everywhere. 
Alas, it needs something more than a residence in a quiet country parish to make any child of Adam a happy man. I know these are ancient things. They have been said a thousand times before without effect, and I suppose they will be said without effect again. I want no greater proof of the corruption of human nature than the pertinacity with which we seek happiness where happiness cannot be found. Century after century, wise men have left on record their experience about the way to be happy. Century after century, the children of men will have it that they know the way perfectly well and need no teaching. They cast to the winds our warnings. They rush everyone on his own favorite path. They walk in a vain shadow and disquiet themselves in vain and wake up when too late to find their whole life has been a grand mistake. Their eyes are blinded. They will not see that their visions are as baseless and disappointing as the mirage of the African desert. Like the tired traveler in those deserts, they think they are approaching a lake of cooling waters. Like the same traveler, they find to their dismay that this fancied lake was a splendid optical delusion and that they are still helpless in the midst of burning sands. Are you a young person? I entreat you to accept the affectionate warning of a minister of the gospel and not to seek happiness where happiness cannot be found. Seek it not in riches. Seek it not in power and rank. Seek it not in pleasure. Seek it not in learning. All these are bright and splendid fountains. Their waters taste sweet. A crowd is standing round them which will not leave them. But oh, remember that God has written over each of these fountains, He that drinketh of this water shall thirst again. John 4.13 Remember this and be wise. Are you poor? Are you tempted to fancy that if you had the rich man's place you would be quite happy? Resist the temptation and cast it behind you. Envy not your wealthy neighbors. Be content with such things as you have. Happiness does not depend on houses or land. Silks and satins cannot shut out sorrow from the heart. Castles and halls cannot prevent anxiety and care coming in at their doors. There is as much misery riding and driving about in carriages as there is in walking about on foot. There is as much unhappiness in sealed houses as in humble cottages. Oh, remember the mistakes which are common about happiness, and be wise. 3. Let me now, in the last place, point out the way to be really happy. There is a sure path which leads to happiness if men will only take it. There never lived the person who traveled in that path and missed the object that he sought to attain. It is a path open to all. It needs neither wealth nor rank nor learning in order to walk in it. It is for the servant as well as for the master. 
It is for the poor as well as for the rich. None are excluded but those who exclude themselves. It is the one only path. All that have ever been happy since the days of Adam have journeyed on it. There is no royal road to happiness. Kings must be content to go side by side with their humblest subjects if they would be happy. Where is this path? Where is this road? Listen, and you shall hear. The way to be happy is to be a real, thoroughgoing, true-hearted Christian. Scripture declares it. Experience proves it. The converted man, the believer in Christ, the child of God, he and he alone is the happy man. It sounds too simple to be true. It seems at first sight so plain a receipt that it is not believed. But the greatest truths are often the simplest, the secret which many of the wisest on earth have utterly failed to discover is revealed to the humblest believer in Christ. I repeat it deliberately and defy the world to disprove it. The true Christian is the only happy man. What do I mean when I speak of a true Christian? Do I mean everybody who goes to church or chapel? Do I mean everybody who professes an orthodox creed and bows his head at the belief? Do I mean everybody who professes to love the gospel? No, indeed. I mean something very different. All are not Christians who are called Christians. The man I have in view is the Christian in heart and life. He who has been taught by the Spirit really to feel his sins. He who really rests all his hopes on the Lord Jesus Christ and his atonement. He who has been born again and really lives a spiritual holy life. He whose religion is not a mere Sunday coat but a mighty constraining principle governing every day of his life. He is the man I mean when I speak of a true Christian. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, 
commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.